sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello, hello again. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for downloading this episode. If you haven't listened to last week's episode or some of the others, make sure you go and do it. Because Martin Sonderstrom spoke out about some personal battles, pressure, anxiety. He even spoke about a panic attack where he was rushed to the hospital. He was really courageous. And it just shows you, even a man at the top of the free ride world, super successful, you never know what someone's going through. So I think he really had some helpful things to say, and people had a great response to it. So make sure you listen to that one. On to this week's episode. I wanted to do something different again. I reached out to my former coach, Alan Mulway. Alan has a great holistic way of looking at the sport, even life and training in general. He has been the coach to the likes of Danny Hart, G. Atherton, Rachel Atherton, Manon Carpenter, Tracy Mosley, Brendan Faircloth, Mike Jones, Matt Simmons to name a few, and Greg Minar has just reached out to him and is helping him as well. So, guys, without further ado, listen to this awesome chat with a guy at the top of his game in the coaching game, and I think you can learn a lot from him for normal training in real life, or if you want to get to the top of the sport, he really is a man for the job. All right, I am lucky to be sitting down and catching up with a former coach of myself and coach to many of the top pros in international downhill and enduro circuit, Alan Milway. How are we doing today? Hey, Andrew. Good to speak to you, bud. Yeah, it's, um, it's good to do these podcasts because I get to catch up uh, for a proper, proper chat with some people that I worked with for well, many years with you and, and you helped me to realize some of my dreams and I think I want to pick your brain into what downhill enduro entails these days because I think you gave it quite a new school look. A lot of your strength training um, was newer than, than some coaches were doing and, and I enjoyed having you at the races because you seemed to have a good holistic view of the whole thing to race at the highest level and give the listener a little background to you and, and your passion for bikes and then getting into coaching. Um. So I, I've always been sports mad. Um, when I was at school, my main thing was football. I, I just love soccer, but I had quite a relatively bad injury, I guess, you know, back when I was maybe 13, 14 and it, it gave me constant pain and, uh, went to see a doctor. We discussed it and he literally, he sat me down and said that the impact sports are really causing you problems. You need to cycle or swim. Those are the two things for you. And, and back then, at my school we had to wear little speedos like little budgie smugglers and i was like i'm not getting in the swim pool with all the girls with these budgie smugglers well, i'm not <laughs> getting on a bar getting on a bike so that that was like that was me and from then on i raced at a pretty good national level um i was in i got up to like the elite class in the uk but i was to be honest i was a, i was at the back end of that you know um but i went on what i realized is that it was the fitness side I was most interested in. And to be honest, like the question I always, always ask myself still now is why are we fatiguing? Why are we getting tired? And because that is the thing that, as you well know, that's what affects your race run, you know, and you, you, you can't always put your finger on exactly what's causing it. Is it one thing? Is it a group of things? Is it a central thing where your mind is starting to drift off? 
because of fatigue or is it your legs burning? And that's what I studied at university. And when I came out of university, I, there was no pathway to coaching and mountain biking, was there? You know, we're talking early 2000s. So I started to work with professional motocross riders. And quite quickly, I was working with two or three of the British Championship teams. Um, and back then, British Championship motocross was was quite a big deal. I think it's, it's taken a bit of a turn for the worse now. It's a bit of a shame. Um, but yeah, back then that was, that was the meat of my work. And I started to have more downhillers approach me. Um, this was before, before Facebook, before Instagram, I, you know, when you had to used to, you had to wait till the end of the month to get the magazines and then you'd open the magazines and see what was in them. Absolutely. I mean, I was even worse in South Africa. So I understand that that's the era. Yeah. It was, it was so exciting. Like to have that, um, that excitement and dirt magazine had just started to come out and I was writing for one of the British motocross magazines. And funnily enough, um, this, I can't remember when this was maybe 2005, 2006 G contacted me after reading one of those articles. And he knew me from like, we had mutual friends and all the rest of it. And so we started to do some work uh, just planning to get him ready for a world championships. And he, he, he was all linked up with Red Bull already back then. And then it just started to progress from there. And I started to work with Danny, you know, as you well know, he was one of your teammates back in the day. You know, I started to work with him quite early on when he was quite young and it just snowballed, I guess. Um, but my passion is, is mountain bikes, you know, it's, it's and it's racing. I, I'm really struggling at the moment, not being able to, try and be involved with the racing like you say that holistic approach i understand there's lots of pieces to this puzzle and saying to someone you need to be stronger is maybe one small piece of that but it's certainly not i'm not one of these coaches that comes in and says you need to be stronger and then that's it you know it all links together well alan you spoke about the holistic view and, and i did as well so it sounds like your passion came at an early age for racing and you spoke about fatiguing is that something when you were racing and you said you weren't quite at the the top end of the field is that something you kept asking yourself why am i fatiguing is you know what are these guys doing is that where that sort of theory and passion came for that fatigue side of it it, it was really interesting because the the fatigue side it with different tracks in different locations, down south the tracks were quite flat and quite peddly. Up north they're really rocky and much steeper. And I was I was really good on the southern tracks and I was really good on the pedaling tracks. And I was able to get my best results when it was a more fitness orientated track. And some of the guys that I beat quite you know, with, with some margin down south would beat me when we went up north. And we'd have those discussions and they would asking me you know, how come you're good at this and you're beating me on that and I'm beating you on this? And it was that debate, really, I think. And I realized that from a technical standpoint, I felt as though technically I was more limited than I was physically when it came to preparation. But for a lot of guys, it was almost the opposite because they, they weren't thinking about the fitness. Technically, they were really good. But then when there was a big fitness component to it in terms of fatiguing or they were always making mistakes on the bottom third of the track. And that's really common, isn't it? People have quite a good run and then your mind starts to wander. And there's obviously a psychological, big psychological part where you're thinking, oh, I'm on a good run. Let's just hold it together. And as soon as you think that, you're thinking about just 
bumbling your way to the finish line and your time becomes rubbish, you know, um, or you're just hanging on for grim death and you make a mistake and you're not quite sure why. So I realized quite quickly that fitness didn't just equate to road cycling because I think in those days, if you trained, you just went on a road ride a couple of times a week. You know, that that was sort of how it was. But uh, I realized there was a lot more to that. So you start getting into motocross training, but knowing that there's a passion for mountain biking. And, and I think motocrossers from the dawn of time are known as some of the most fit athletes out there. Um, and now they're getting exposed even more so for it. And, and scientifically, they, they really are proven to be so. So do you think something like that uh, made G reach out to you where he saw, okay, you're training a motocross rider. He can hang on to a heavy motocross bike for 40, 45 minute um, yeah. race motos. Surely he can get me fit enough to hang on for five minutes, which it's so crazy to, to understand how fatigued you can get when someone says, oh, you're just riding a downhill bike down a hill. And, um, oh, exactly. So, yeah, talk to me about that. Do you think it's a bit of that motocross where people gave you the credibility? Well, he can train a motocross rider. Surely he can get me fit for a downhill bike. Yeah, I think I think that probably did help, actually. And also that there's always been, I would say that downhill has always looked at motocross. Um, I Maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, but this ruling that came into place a little, well, a good long time ago now about no lycra, don't take your peak off your helmet. A lot of that was to maintain the image of downhill racing. And basically what they were saying is we want to look like motocross riders, but on bike, on push bikes and the companies, the brands. So there, there was always this link. And I think that motocross was, has always been a gnarly sport. You know, those guys are, are hardcore riders and I was involved with that and understanding what they were going through. And I could see their mentality. Those boys are tough. And I worked with some really tough lads back then who um, they weren't afraid to work hard, but I could see they were sometimes working hard in the wrong areas. And I was able to pull them back and they were able to see it over the course of a moto or two motos. So you'd have some guys who are really good at moto one and they could just couldn't come back out for moto two because they were cooked. And I was able to explain to them probably why that was happening and we were able to go away and work on it and come back and then Moto2 is better. And then they go, oh, okay. And I think that that certainly helps with the mountain bikers because they realized that there was a, there was that element of, you know, those bikes are what, 70, 80 kilos or more. Uh, it's, they're big, heavy things. So if, if you can hang on to one of those, you've got a good chance for a five minute downhill run. Yeah, and then you start working with uh, G. Atherton, as you mentioned, and um, let's let's dig into yeah the the key misconceptions of say training for downhill, or maybe even your view coming into training for downhill. I think is a, is a, is kind of the same answer. I, I think with downhill, there's there's two elements to look at, and this is something that I always try and when I when I'm starting to work with somebody, I, I need to consider. The first is the is the demands of the sport. So what you need to do is you need to understand what does the sport require from you. And to do that, you've got to get some information about that sport. So as you well know, you know, I've been very fortunate to travel around the world with you. You know, we've been all over to different races and I've had you with heart rate monitors on, you've had power cranks on your bike. I've taken blood samples from you. You know, I want to know what is Andrew going through? You know, what are you going through? And the same with G and the same with 
all the other lads is I want to understand what is the demand of the sport and that helps you build a picture. Now, don't forget that the physiology of downhill, it's not on its own little island. It obviously crosses over to different sports. So there's some things that I can look at and go, okay, so he's got really high lactate. The event is this long. You know what? I'm going to go and chat with an Olympic rowing coach because an Olympic rower has similar demands to a certain extent. They've got repeated power outputs that are quite high, you know, predominantly triple extension. So they're pushing something away from them. Not that unlike a pedal where you're pushing away from in a standard position. They've got really high lactate. It's sustained. And the event is over 2000 meters. It might go on for eight minutes on the water. Do you see what I mean? All of a sudden I can get someone else's viewpoint as opposed to maybe the traditional approach. And this is where a lot of training came from is you were going to a road cycling coach or you were looking in a, a road cycling training book and going, right, what can I pick out from a four hour event that might help me in my event? Yeah, and, I think, yeah, that's know. still happening. I think even to this day, and, and that's a brilliant point. You seem to come and look at it from a fresh set of eyes, if you will. And I remember yeah. doing rowing intervals with you. I, I hadn't done those before, I'll be very honest. And I hated them, but I definitely saw how they helped. So you looked at that. You spoke about the heart rate monitor. And for a listener at home, or even someone new to downhill or mountain biking, we did a heart rate monitor run at Champery, which is one of the steepest tracks on the on the circuit. Yeah. Gnarliest, yeah. definitely. But there is basically yeah. no pedaling on this track. Yes. From what I remember, yes. and it's a story I tell to this day, my heart rate and riders' heart rates were sitting at almost max threshold from the get-go and to the bottom, and they were almost higher or the same as a track like Fort William, which has a lot of pedaling. It's a lot um, of pumping. It's physical the whole way down. And yeah. that, that was super interesting and probably gave you some some crazy info, oh, you know? It was it was amazing. And that I think you, it's really nice to be able to discuss this point because so many people link heart rate monitors with pedaling and they're like my heart rate will go up because i'm pedaling but in actual fact it and they're like trying to understand well i don't under i don't understand why is your heart rate so high when you're not doing any pedaling and that's why you need to be at the track and you need to understand that essentially you're holding i call it like not to get too scientific but a quasi isometric hold so it's pretty much trying to maintain a stable position the entire time. Now, of course, you're moving around the bike. There's fluidity on the bike. But you're trying to push back into everything that's coming at you. And the steeper the track, you know the track. It's so steep and then you go into a catch berm. And if you didn't have any strength, you'd be straight over the front of the bike. So you're trying to press yourself off the bars. And all of these holds are anaerobic. So the muscle's in a contraction and there's very little blood flow through the muscle during those periods where you've got a significant contraction. And that essentially forces the heart rate up because when there's any opportunity to flush that and you know get some fresh blood into that muscle, the heart rate's working really hard. So you've got a very, very high heart rate and a high effort level um, and also high lactate. And I, I've got those runs... I've got all that data saved. And what's really interesting is, um, so in 2011 in Champery, obviously Danny had one of the most legendary downhill runs, I think of all time. And I had his data from basically that week as well. So in the 
it's not qualifying, is it, at uh, World Champs? Yeah, it's like they a call time, it time training, time, isn't it? Timed run. Yeah, it's, it's like yeah. qualifying, but everyone go, goes through at that time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I had the data from that run. And what's what's amazing is that's one of my favorite ever graphs. That sounds so geeky, doesn't it? But it's well, no, like... I think <laughs> scientific and science is playing such a huge role in coaching and in life. So you have to look at these things. Yeah, and it's it's just amazing to see you had like you've got velocity, you've got heart rate, and you've got gradient. And the gradient, when you look at it, I've shown it to some people who have no idea about downhill. I've shown it to physiologists who work with swimmers and cyclists and footballers and whatever. And they're like, what the hell, where the hell were you? Because the gradient is like, it's like a 45 degree ski slope. You know, overall, you look at this gradient and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's mental. And then the velocity obviously starts from zero at the start hut and the velocity goes up and it's really jaggedy obviously where you're slowing down and speeding up and slowing down and speeding up and the heart rate goes through the roof now that heart rate is was very stable for the entire run and danny peaked at 207 beats a minute okay so his like peak heart rate in that run and this is time training this isn't the race run was 207 beats a minute now when he was testing because we did a vo2 max test maybe four weeks before that so we had done like a uh, a fitness test to see where he was at he put in some amazing vo2 max numbers and his maximum heart rate in the lab was at 202 that's ridiculous just see what i mean so he's not putting one pedal stroke but his heart rate has superseded anything that if if i wore a white coat and i never went to a downhill run i'd be like that's impossible he's not done that you know he'd only do his maximum in the lab and i i took away so much from that day and obviously that weekend about going well these guys they don't they don't necessarily have to pedal but they have to have power and that i think is i remember you you can imagine the conversations i've had with your friend of mine sven martin when Gwynny won leo gang without a chain and he was like, no way, they don't need to be straight. And I know that Sven's like trying to crank that. You know what I mean? He's trying to wind me up to get me to blow at him. And I was like, dude, I, I completely understand. But they still need strength and power because of what the ground is doing to them. You know, what's coming back at them. Yeah, you spoke about that resisting force. And is that something, if you're resisting continuously and not uh, alleviating, is that building more lactic acid? So when you're resisting something... Yeah. And putting, you know, I'm kind of here at my desk, pushing forward and tensing my forearm. I can feel that almost that pump already and not aware of it. That would lead to arm pump and this lactic acid, right? And then the heart rate, what, beating exactly. harder to try flush that. Is that something I've understood yeah. correctly? Exactly that. So this is, the, this is where you've got to try and put everything into place. And the way I look at training is some people would say right so andrew is pushing away at the desk i need to get him to press but he never needs to press once or twice he needs to press for three or four minutes so what we'll do is we'll focus just on doing that loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and that's very valid because obviously it's getting you accustomed to this fatigue and it's helping you maintain a position but the flip side of that is if i was to look at your maximum possible okay if i was to say right andrew what's the maximum you can press if i then compared it to how you're pressing over that period again and again and again. It might be that if you're not very strong, you're actually working at quite a high percentage of your maximum. 
So there's more fatigue. Obviously, if I'm working at a higher proportion of my 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 to- my potential, it's going to fatigue me more. So another way you can look at it is if I can raise that that peak of power or peak of strength, everything I do underneath that again and again and again is going to be proportionally less. You see. So uh, if we think about a bench press, if I can bench press 80 kilos, if I need to be able to bench press 50 kilos in a race run. That's a relatively high proportion of 80 kilos. If I can raise that bench press up to 100, 120 kilos, all of a sudden I can drop that, you know, that 50 kilos becomes less of 50%. So it's proportionally a lot easier. Yeah, and you can do more of those reps in theory, right? If we just exactly. take the bench press theory, more reps at 50. Yeah. Okay. And, that, and so, but it's really important to understand that both sides of that coin are vital. So I'm not training someone to be a powerlifter on a bench. I, I have to make a judgment call. What is strong enough? So if someone comes to me and I can see there's a real weakness, I'm like, right, we need to get that better. Like I'd say a really good example is I've got some of my athletes now, some of them aren't great on the bench press, so they do more strength work to maybe up that number. But others, I've got guys who bench press over 100 kilos and they make it look easy. So what's the point? Do I need to just make, make them do that? Or actually, can I work on another area? And can I make them do more reps? So it's it's like a constant juggle. And I don't think that one plan fits everyone at all. And I think that if you look at one exercise out of context, this is the problem with social media and sharing. And, you know, if I put up an exercise, someone's like, why do you need that? Or why are you focusing on that? You're not trying to turn them into weightlifters. Or, you know, someone's always got an opinion because it's out of context. Um, so... It's just building a clear picture, isn't it? Absolutely, and and you've spoken about that. It seems that you need to be strong for modern day downhill, and you spoke about resisting. And if you think about someone on a bike hitting a, a really big bump, he's got to resist the bike coming into his chest. Otherwise, if he doesn't, he'll fold over and he'll crash. So let's speak to this this new school view of strength in downhill. Some of the Olympic lifts that you and other coaches are incorporating? So where Olympic lifts, shall we say, they come into play is um, we use, I use derivatives of these lifts. So Olympic lifts are generally, you've got a clean and jerk movement, which is where you lift the bar from the floor to your shoulders and then press it above your head. And you've got a snatch movement, which is where you lift the bar from the floor over your head in one movement. Now to do them really well, takes an awful lot of technique work. Okay, so it takes a lot of practice. You have to spend a lot of time to do that well because ultimately the limitation to you putting that bar over your head for most people is actually technique and not strength. And you'll find that there'll be a threshold where I can see I've been in the gym many a time with coaches and they've got someone lifting relatively lightweight just because they can't, they know the technique's the limiting factor. So if you break down these movements to what we call the derivatives, where you do a partial movement of that, or you actually say, well, what is the Olympic movement trying to do? It's trying to have quite a a fast movement and a triple extension movement. So your ankles, you're pointing your toes, your knees are straight and your hips are extending. So your hips are coming forward. And it's that movement we're trying to train because from the lower body, we're trying to not only deliver power to the bike, but just like you said, when you're landing a jump where you're dropping off something, where you're coming into a tight berm, if you don't have that strength, you cannot maintain posture. And ultimately, my I would say that one of my biggest jobs as a coach is to let you be in the position you want to be on the bike 
for that entire run. And if you can do that, you can do the rest technically. But when you don't do that, and I don't want to bring this up, do you remember in Leo Gang, you're on an absolute flyer and you jump into that left-hand berm and you jump into the right-hand berm and it spits you off in a weird direction and you yeah. shot off the track? I'd say that that's not – hey, I'm not questioning a, a weakness there, but you can you can understand completely the importance of that effect with a little bit of fatigue and you're not quite – you haven't quite got it right. You suddenly – the position changes, doesn't it? And all of a sudden you're like, where the hell am I? I've just been spat off the track. Absolutely. The G-forces in there are big. I'm going to defend myself that I rolled my tire, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the argument sure. stays the same that if you're stronger, potentially you could have even ridden that out or had more chance or if you were less fatigued. Absolutely. It's further down the track. You've just done some sprinting and pedaling. It's a great example of – of the modern day challenges of downhill and the speed the riders are going at the moment and those g-forces that they're they're having to handle exactly and that that really is the way i'm looking at it and trying to look at it and i had some accelerometers i've used accelerometers for a few years now i took some data this season but some of the most interesting data i've got from accelerometers was at andorra i had accelerometers on g on rach and on martin mays and you can understand, like Martin was a junior back then, and I had these three people in the same tent. I had accelerometers on them all, and G was defending his world title from the year before. And uh, it was what was really interesting was at that race um, when you overlaid the data, you had Rachel was like a mini G, if you see what I mean. Uh, like her run was very similar to G's in the way she accelerated and braked, and the forces weren't quite as high. And you could see the speeds G was able to reach were higher and he was able to brake harder and everything was a bit more elevated. And then when you looked at Martin Mays, Martin was just like absolutely your classic junior, like absolute car crash of a run. And you're like, Martin, what the hell? And he was just like, oh, yeah, I was a bit loose here and a bit wild there. And you could see that he braked really in the wrong place or he got something wrong. But the overall run was really fast. And I was like, wow, if he can iron out some of these things and be more consistent, he's going to be unbelievable. And, you know, I, I think the evidence shows itself, doesn't it, the way he's he's kept coming forward. But they, there was some really interesting stuff when the highest G-forces were as the riders were going into really steep berms. And they were basically, the, the bike was trying to, the inertia was trying to throw them over the front of the bike. And if I was going into that same corner with you, I would have to brake earlier. I'd have to scrub more speed just to hold my position to make sure I wasn't on the brakes through the turn. But if I'm stronger and more powerful, I can go, you know what? Let's, well, like you were saying in the game, like let's see how much the tire can hold because all of a sudden you're not the limiting factor. You're putting the limiting factor onto the bike. And then this is why I think, there's no better test bed than a professional when you're testing kit. And I also think testing kits in a race situation is really, really sketchy because I don't care how many 20 engineers at your company have tested this stuff. You know, you have not had it on a World Cup rider's bike and they, you are not going anywhere near as quick. No, the failures of some equipment happening in, in race runs because you're just able to push your body and, and bike to the absolute limit. So this strength has, has, has really been made more popular with the likes of when you worked with G. Atherton and even Danny as a youngster, um, and then I noticed it as well. We were always doing gym, but it seems like there's been more of a focus on the strength because of maybe the tracks changing. And do you think... Um, 
injury prevention um, is, is, is key in downhill. We know that. But this strength training and gym work really helps with that? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And there's two sides to this that I think are really are worthwhile talking about. The first is when you talk about injury prevention, I think you can you can also incorporate preventing the, the accident happening. So there'll be a situation where you might have landed something all wrong. I, funnily enough, uh, last season, Charlie Hatton sent me a sequence of photos that one of the guys had taken of him in practice. And he got something completely wrong and he was over the front of the bike and he landed front wheel first, suspension completely bottomed out. And he was able to literally press himself back off the bike and he was able to hold it and ride it out. And he was like, dude, thank you so much because that was a dislocated shoulder end of the season. You know, if I didn't have that strength, I'm done. So he was able to ride it out, live to fight another day. The second side of it is if you do come off and obviously I'm not trying to... I can't prevent injury, but what I can try and do is if we talk about the shoulder is try and make that shoulder as strong and as mobile as possible so that if you do land in an awkward position, you have strength in that range. So a lot of people, if they're just bench pressing or just pressing forward, so if I'm trying to push you away from me, they're very good there. But if I ask them to press overhead, they don't have any range in the shoulder to actually be strong overhead. But if I was to trip you up, and I was to, you were to land face first on the floor, your arm would essentially be in that overhead position, wouldn't it? You, do you see what I mean? So you need to be strong in these ranges. Yeah, and then um, we, we're speaking a lot about strength, and, I, and I'm sure you don't want someone listening and going away and saying, well, I've just got to spend five days a week in the gym. Um, you, you spoke about a holistic view of downhill. Training as a whole, every individual is different, and I, and I think that's key in any sport. You, you can't train the same for different body types. So what what is the biggest misconception when training for downhill in this day and age? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is trying to replicate the downhill run in every session you do. So if, you know, I said you need to understand the sport, you need to understand what you're training for. If if we were to sit down and say, right, a race run is normally between three and five minutes, your heart rate is maxed out, your lactate is maxed out, we've got to work really hard, there, there is a temptation to go, right, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try and repeat that in every session I do. And there is a real important time to do that sort of work. And it's very valid, like as we've been discussing for, you know, for the past 20 minutes or so, it's really important to have that side of it. But there is another side to that, and it's it's this underpinning foundation to allow you to do that hard work. Um, if I was to take two people, one of them has a really good fitness base, so they do a lot of exercise generally. They go for long trail rides. They ride their road bike. They might go for long, steady runs. They've got this nice aerobic foundation, and what that foundation allows them to do is it allows them to do some work at quite a high level, but then recover really quite quickly. And then they can do some more and then they can recover quite quickly. But if you've got someone who doesn't have that foundation of aerobic development, all they do is these really short, hard sessions. What you'll find is they'll generally break down at about the same time and their ceiling, there's like a ceiling that they can't break through. So they might be able to work really hard, but then they just can't punch through that ceiling. And 
I see it in the lab a lot when I'm doing what I call submax tests. So they're aerobic step tests. They gradually get harder and gradually get harder. And I take a lot of measurements through those tests. And what I find is that those people with a, a much lower aerobic uh, development, should we say, aerobic capacity, they can work hard, but then they sort of just blow up. And all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, he can't do one more. There's not one more movement left in this guy. He's done. And Even at a low power range, it's he, he just kind of has hit a wall. Yeah, when you when you reach a certain level and you build lactate, it's much harder to come back out of that and then go again. So if I was doing, if if you were to look at say a sprint repeat style test where they had to go really hard, recover thirty seconds, go hard again, recover again, you you'll end up the person who's got a bigger bigger aerobic base for this everything else being the same, they will be able to do more of those efforts. And for me, I think it's really important to understand that side of it and build this picture that I'm not going to ask you to go hard all the time. And if you look at a training plan and that a lot of the training I'm discussing with the guys at the moment with the times we're in and what we're up to, there's some really quite long, steady stuff still in there, you know, to keep that aerobic side. And it's, it's a big part of the puzzle and to understand where it fits in, because you might look at you know, you might look at downhill and then you might see a guy on a road bike who's going out for four hours and go, well, I don't understand. Why would you ever do that? You know, why would it's so non-specific to the sport? But maybe when you understand the athlete in question and how his week fits together, you'd be like, okay, maybe actually that's valid to, to look after one component of what he needs. Um, so it's, it's always changing, but I'd say for someone to take away from an amateur, it, it's quite easy for them to think, right, I can just smash myself. I'm going out on my road bike. I'm going to smash myself apart on this hour that I've got available. I, I wouldn't encourage that. You know, I, I'd say try and be a bit more savvy about it and go hard for short periods and recover really well, then go hard again. You know, don't just have this high average. Yeah, it's that um, back in the day, I mean, it was either, you know, it was almost flat out the whole time. And, and I think you've been using a lot of science and data to show us, I mean, how key rest is. And then you spoke about this anaerobic side and maybe to educate the listeners, that's pre-season, you know, so say from December, January, there are longer rides, uh, different workouts in the gym. And if I understand it correctly and how I used to train was that would help me have a base so that when we had hard work and intervals leading up to the season, I could recover and the next day do them again. Yeah, and if you weren't, exactly. and if you weren't a anaerobic fit rider, on day two and day three in a week, when it was a hard week, you would really struggle and really struggle to get out of bed and not be able to put good workload in come Thursday, Friday in a week. And maybe if you're not quite fit enough in a downhill week, by the time qualifying comes on Sunday, you're just dead. You're tired. You don't have get up and go come race. So that sounds like the biggest misconception is people are trying to train too specifically. And they, yeah. they're missing the, the overview of, of being a, a fit rider Absolutely. that can make it through a week of hard training as well as a week of downhill at a race. Exactly that. And I, this is this is it. And, and you sort of touched on a really interesting point as well. When it comes when it comes to an amateur rider in the week, they often want to make sure that they feel like they've done a training session. So that if they've got a time available, they want to be sweaty and tired and, and sit down and well, you know, that was good. I've, I've earned my whatever, you know, my can of Coke or whatever they want. But that's that's interesting because it, as we've discussed, that's not always the case. But the second point that I think is really interesting to discuss is you and I know that 
a World Cup starts on a Thursday and it finishes on a Sunday at maybe 5 p.m. And I don't, I might care and you might care about Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, but no one else does. They care about Sunday afternoon. The only thing that matters is the final run you do down that track. And you might have done what, nine, eight, ten runs on that track? And you've, you know, you might have walked it plus, three times. Yeah, plus you've walked it. I think the the, yeah. the toughness at a downhill is if you're not feeling too good and you feel like you need to go walk that track, you're on your feet as well. So it's long days. It really is long days. And if you're practicing correctly, you are riding a lot of those sections at, at race pace, which fatigues you as well. And the mental drain. Yeah, and you've got to be on your A game come Sunday afternoon, energy-wise. Yeah, this is it. And it's what's been really interesting. And the the, the real interesting thing to, to the job I do is to understand the individual. And I'm able to work with some guys at a really high level. And over the winter, like to have, I was up in Sheffield with the syndicate riders, Greg, Loris, Luca, testing them and going, right, what do these, you know, what do these guys need this winter? What will help them? Where are they at? Where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? And if you took Loris and Greg, they're very, very different in terms of that makeup. You know, Loris was like super powerful, sprinty, poppy, had loads of explosiveness in him. But aerobically, we could, you know, he would, could improve a lot. And Greg was almost the opposite. And aerobically, he was incredible. And especially the time, like the time of the year where he hasn't been able to work on that area specifically, you could see where decades of training are residual. You know, he's still got that aerobic capacity. And when we were discussing the results and what I, when I looked at his profile, what I think he, he might benefit from and how it would help him, you could see he like looked at me and he was like, yes. And I was like, wicked, because we're on the same page. You know, he, he could see where he was strong and I wasn't trying to mess with that. You know, I'm not trying to go, no, we're not, we're going to tear up this, you know, tear up this rule book and do it my way. No, no, no. The, I, I'm not there to try and make big changes for someone like Greg. I'm trying to go, look, how about this? I think you could probably improve this area. Are you finding this is a problem sometimes, or you could be better at that? And it seems crazy sometimes for an amateur to maybe go, well, how are you trying to tell a, the best downhill rider that's, you know, that's raced that he could be better at something. But we all know those guys are not satisfied. I've been with plenty of World Cup winners who were not satisfied at the end of the day. You know, they want to be better. So they're always looking for an area to improve on. And that's what's really good, that drive to make themselves better, you know. And that's, that goes back to the misconception. Someone like Greg, who, who maybe hasn't focused hugely on strength, but because of his years of the old school training and anaerobic, he, he seems to maybe have that energy come finals run yes on peddly tracks but on most tracks he he is so solid down the bottom of a track so that's that's an interesting point and you brought something up that i think a listener can help because i've had countless of these conversations you must have 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 thousands of them is rest and and when to train in what zone and i think there's such a misconception and i even had it with brendan you know when when we were yeah. working together and, and you started helping Brendan and we'd go out on the road bike and because of just old habit, he would go quite hard. And I said, but what is today? Yeah, today, is a rest, yeah, exactly. today is a rest yeah. ride. It's an hour easy to flush the legs so that tomorrow we can do, say, intervals or gym or motocross or whatever it is. 
Yeah. And uh, I think the, the the guys that have a full-time job that maybe are mentally drained and have kids, and they're trying to put in these, these workloads that are maybe even similar to a pro, but also they're going hard, as you said, every day, and that's not that's not going to help. Talk a little bit to the, the amateur, the aspiring rider, or the guy that works full-time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting sort of area because there are plenty of people that hold down full-time jobs. They maybe work physical jobs, and they still want to succeed on the weekend, and they still want to progress their mountain biking career. And it's it's... I think you were able to summarize it really well in your understanding of what is the session trying to achieve. If we are to do something aerobically, what we mean by that is there's there's no significant accumulation of, let's say, lactic acid. I think that's a term people understand, where your legs start to feel heavy, um, you feel tired the next day. There's no accumulation of that. And one of the benefits of fully aerobic training is it really helps develop the sort of engine room of the muscle so it makes the muscle more efficient it allows you to burn more fat as a fuel it allows you to recover better it allows you to go further and it builds this lovely foundation and for enduro riders and for riders that want to be better all day and you know to go out for two and a half three hours with their friends on a weekend that is a really important area now we've all got friends who we meet up in the car park they shoot off up the first two, three hills. They're in front of you all the way. And like, no way, I thought you were supposed to be a fitness coach. All of that business, I get it all the time. And all of a sudden, after 60, 70 minutes, they've just blown a gasket because that's all they do. And if you're an amateur rider, you've really got to think, am I doing enough of this steady state work? Um, I am generalizing here, but if you wear a heart rate monitor, generally for a lot of people, 140 beats a minute or below will keep you fully aerobic. Obviously, some people will be a lot higher than that. Some people will be a lot lower than that. But just as a number to help people, if you're at 140 beats a minute, you're probably aerobic and you can probably go for a long period of time. You can hold a conversation with your buddies. You can wake up the next day and your legs aren't going to feel completely empty or tired. If you start to creep up to 160 beats a minute or over, again, generally speaking, you'll start to accumulate some of this, this fatigue in the legs and you won't be able to go day in, day out doing that effort. And for some people who just want, the summer's quite a difficult time because in the UK we have such horrible winters. The summer comes and you just want to be out all the time. I, I'm out every day at the moment, at least once doing some form of cycling and it's amazing, but I've always got an eye on that to go, well, look, if I'm going to go hard today, I'm not going to be at a weightlift tomorrow. Or if I do weightlift, my legs are going to be cooked. So I've always got that understanding, what's the point? And for an amateur rider, it's really important that you you bear that in mind and you almost save yourself. So if you're going to go hard, make sure you're properly going hard. Yeah, speak more speak more about that because there's been a lot of data and science that has come out to zone training. So if we talk about zones, and please jump in, but if we said there were five zones and zone one and two is... Uh, uh, what under 140 beats per minute or or fill me in but that yeah. that zone in the middle which people often sit in it plays yeah, no here we go. there's no positive yeah. role to that because you either need to be going slow in recovery for that type of training or very hard to work that that other area of the heart rate and the lactic and i think some people fall in the middle so often that they're actually almost doing nothing 
Yeah, it's it's there. There is there. There are different zones that sort of stem from recovery zone zone one, very low to aerobic endurance. Then you come into this sort of um, what we call basically lactate threshold, and that's the first point on this curve of lactate accumulation, and that's where. A lot of people consider that two millimoles, but let's not worry about that at the moment. That's where there's a slight increase in lactate. But if you stay at around that zone, you can go for hours and hours and you can make really good aerobic development. Now, a lot of Olympic sports that are endurance based will spend a lot of time in that area. They might spend 80% of their time there and then 20% a bit further up that curve where if you go much higher than that, all of a sudden your performance falls off a cliff. And that's the anaerobic threshold. So that's normally where this sort of polar training, you know, it's one thing or the other comes in. The Where a lot of amateurs come unstuck is they don't really ever spend any time at one of those or the other. They spend time in, in between. And a lot of people can call it sweet spots. Um, and there is a role to play for sweet spot training, absolutely, but you will never ever race at sweet spot. And I think that's the critical thing. So you're going to accumulate some lactate. You're feeling as though you're puffing and panting quite hard. But if you're on Strava, your times are never going to be that good. And you're not at your FTP. You're probably just below it. And a lot of people rely on this FTP figure, but I've got real reservations about it because in all the testing we've done, FTP is like it's functional threshold power and it's something that's become quite popular as power cranks have become more available. And it it's a way that you can almost work out for yourself without being in a lab or getting any blood work done what your anaerobic threshold is. So they're almost equated. And the way to do that test properly is to go absolutely flat out for a, a whole hour and you take the average wattage for that hour. But the problem is that, as you will probably understand, to do that takes a, it's very difficult to push yourself to the limit for an hour. So what they did is they made the test 20 minutes. And the idea was you go really hard for 20 minutes and then you take 95% of that number and take your FTP. And the problem that you have is that a lot of people can go hard for 20 minutes they can push themselves and curl up in the corner of the hedge after 20 minutes and go, wow, I've got a really good FTP. But actually, when they do all their sums off that number, they're sort of training in a bit of a no man's land. And it, it turns into junk miles where they're just out and they're feeling quite tired, but it's not one thing or the other. And I think my advice to an amateur is to try and understand a little bit about their profile is to try and understand what they're trying to achieve in the long term. Are they going out to ride and ride their bike and have fun in that evening? Or are they trying to use that evening's ride as a, as a, as a building block for something greater? And it's, if you don't understand this, you can spend a lot of time in this sort of middle training zone when you're, you're never going to really improve that because you're not going low enough to really exploit this aerobic side. And you're never really going hard enough to push on that anaerobic side. So it is a difficult thing for people, but there is plenty of there's plenty of information out there that you can source from training peaks, from uh, a lot of road cycling blogs. It does come back to the road cycling because it's it's been taken on so much. But yeah, it's it's a big problem for people. I think they get carried away on that one evening and. They, they maybe go a little bit too hard, but they don't go hard enough for it to be a training interval, you know? 
Yeah, I think that's it's great info and, and that kind of no-go zone is is getting more popular and I don't think it's a fad or hype. I think it's because of science has, has driven that. And we've spoken a lot about strength of fitness and you are a fitness coach, strength coach, but I did see you taking, we've, you've used the word holistic view. We look at the whole puzzle and all the pieces that fit in and we can't speak coaching or downhill or enduro or cycling or sport without looking at the mental side so let's speak a little bit about the the mental side and 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 maybe some of the things you've you've learned from some of the riders you've worked with or what you've picked up from being at downhill races as a coach the, the mental side is honestly it's probably the, the the most key in terms of racing performance and a, a nice way to look at this and to understand this is if, if you're stood on the side of a track watching World Cup practice, you might start, you might have a stopwatch with you, you might just be filming or you might be watching with your mates and then there'll probably be 15 riders that come through that section and they blow you away. You're like, whoa, that guy could win this weekend, that guy could win this weekend, that guy could win this weekend, that girl's coming faster than all the rest. Oh, actually, she's going really quick. So you'll see these riders who, from a technical standpoint, they're not limited. That track is not limited. Is Their technique is not affecting their riding down that track. They can go as fast as they want to down there. You know, Their technique allows it. The, the funny thing is when you come to the race run, it all boils down to that one event. Now, some people look at that as a, as a real concern because they've only got one chance to make it count and they've done 10 really good runs this weekend oh, please let the 11th one be good. But then there's another approach where the top riders look at it as this is my opportunity to show you how good I am. I'm going to show you how good I am in this one run. And they don't, they take that motivation and then they forget about it. And they go, right, the way to do this is I need to be outside line left-hand turn. I need to jump that rock. I need to make sure I scrub that corner. I need to go left, left, left. I need to cut across high. That's the way they're looking at the track. For a lot of other people, they're going, right, please, can I get down without a mistake? If I get down here, maybe I'll get on the podium. If I get on the podium, maybe my Instagram followers will go up. Actually, I've got a bonus. Maybe I get five grand if I do this. All of these other things are sort of the outcome goals. And as soon as you start to think about the outcome, you've got real problems. And it takes your focus away from what's in front of you. So the process, you spoke to some of the process, and I think the preparation and process is key. And it's there's a difference between a rider that, that, that wants to win and then goes about his process and someone that needs to win or needs, you know, needs the, the bonus or needs to get on the podium. Do you, do you think that plays a vital role? The top guys, they're wanting to do well, and then that's just a byproduct of after going through the processes and getting that run done. Well, this is where you see when someone has a good result early on in the season and it often carries through, it's the effect of this self-confidence because all of a sudden it's gone from I need to get a good result to hang on, I've got my good result, I'm set up for the year now. I can now just be me, go through my process and the result will come. And you'll, you do get riders who have really good seasons or guys who maybe have string a couple of runs together because what they've done is all of a sudden it's nothing that has changed technically. It's just the fact that they've, they've almost been relaxed from this mental stress because they don't need to prove anything anymore. They can go about the process and they can trust themselves. 
you know, I was chatting to Martin Mays. It was really interesting. When we were working together, he um, he was really hit or miss in enduro. He would put in, it was really funny, I was going through his results, and he'd be like second, third, fifth, 19th, 24th puncture. You know, that was the story of his weekend, or he'd have mechanicals. And he'd have these flashes of brilliance, but then make either big mistakes or have crashes or he'd take really risky lines. And then he started to mature. And Martin's come on to be obviously such a well-rounded rider. And he was at Fort William and we were having a, we were walking the track together. And I was like, Martin, what, you know, what's changed? How, how amazing season, how, what's, what's made the difference? And he said, well, I can now just trust that I just need to do what I do. I don't need to do anything different. And I know that if I do what I do and I ride how I know I can ride, that's all that that's that's enough. Um, and it's just this self-confidence. And and the flip side of that is a rider who maybe they've got a clause in their contract or they've got a one-year deal and they know if they can get a top 25 or a top 30, that's their contract sorted for next year. But the problem they'll have is that all they'll be worried about is the result. It's not the. It's not about riding the track. So they're 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 not fully focused on the the job at hand. They're fully focused on something outside of that, which ultimately is out of their control. You know, they're worrying about something they can't control. Um, and this approach, the top guys. When you look at the top guys, they've got this self confidence. They can take a lot. Like if you look at Bruni and Gwyn, I think they're two really ex- good examples of people who are amazing at. If they win or lose, they'll celebrate it. Thank you very much. And then they'll move on. You know, they don't get caught up in it too much, do they? They just, they're very, very level-headed, I think, across the highs and the lows. And I think that really that really plays to their advantage. Yeah, and you spoke about what's in their control and out of their control and, and trusting yourself. And it's, it's easier said than done. It's easy for us to chat about. Yeah. But oh, you do yeah. see it at Definitely. the top level of any sport. The self-confidence comes from trusting the process and your preparation and then focus on yourself. Let's look at a sport of downhill. It's a time trial event. You, in essence, are only competing against yourself because you can't exactly. control. You cannot control. Gwyn cannot control how fast Greg is on that weekend, but he can control how well he prepares and how well he stays in his lane. And I think you'll notice it. And, and if listeners ever get to a race, you can often spot a rider that's kind of sticking to his own own process and, and trusting himself. Yes, he's watching other riders, but that's to get info and then make a decision on what line he's going to ride. And yeah. and I yeah, think, yeah. think yeah, you know, we've we've seen it over the years when Gwyn's out front and he's riding on his own, he just trusts himself. When you start seeing him follow other riders more, maybe he hasn't quite got his confidence and he's working through his process. Um, or a rider that's asking a lot about lines versus a weekend when he doesn't. So... I think it's you're really only racing against yourself and and what you can control and it's so it's way easier said than done but if you just go back to that and knowing that you just have to focus on yourself and what you can control I think if you if if any listeners out there have the opportunity to go to a world cup race uh, you'll learn the most honestly you'll learn the most about the riders and you'll get the biggest insight if you actually spend finals at the top of the hill and I know that sounds crazy and you're not going to want to do it because you want to watch the racing, but the, the top of the hill on a race day when you've got the final 10 guys is an incredible place to be. It's very quiet. It's everyone is in their own little space. 
no one's being stupid or playing up or worried about anyone else. No one's looking at anyone else. They're in their own place. And they're going through this visualization of the track. They're worried about the setup of their bike for a very specific reason. They'll have narrowed down a their line choices. And all they're doing is trying to put themselves in a place physically and mentally where they can execute that plan. Now, and they know and they've got the confidence, if I execute my plan to the best of my ability, I don't, doesn't matter what anyone else does. And I think that's really important because if you do the best you can do on that day and you cross the line first or cross the line 15th, you can be happy. You know, you can go away going, that was cool. I'm happy with that. And for those guys who have the ability to push the envelope, they're not worried about what anyone else is doing. They're trying to say, have I got my bike set up? Have I got the right tires on? Is my suspension sorted? And that's how they're using practice. They're not using practice to go, am I going fast enough? Because they will make that judgment of, have I got the limit of my grip? Because ultimately, your speed is limited by your grip, isn't it? If I've got, if I'm on the edge of my grip through a turn, hey, that's me done. I, you know, if I push any further, I know that I'm just risking it. So they're not looking at how anyone else rides through that corner. Um, and the mental approach to that is very much is insular. It's not looking at other people. It's not looking at social media to see who's on what line. It's not questioning themselves. It's understanding that by the time they're at the top of the hill, they've done all they can do. And that's why I think training is really important because it ticks a big box for them from a self-confidence point of view. I'm not going to get tired. If you can go to the top going, I can go down Fort William as fast as I need to without something throwing me offline, that's a massive boost, isn't it, to yourself? Yeah, I think certain riders, definitely me being one of them, gained a lot from knowing that I've ticked every box. I, I, I employ a coach like yourself we work through a plan. I follow it as best I can. We adapt when an injury comes in or travel. And I know when I get to a race, I've hopefully done everything I can to to have enough content to trust the, the process. And you mentioned social media and you mentioned those things. There's, there's, it's an interesting time with inputs from social media and, and riders doing well from it. Do you think downhill racing is going to grow from from social media or are up-and-coming talented riders potentially seeing that that's an avenue to keep sponsors happy or gain sponsors and and not put the it's not that they won't put the work in but let's let's say that that a uh, single-minded focus is needed to race at the top level in world cup down i think that's a fact so it's not laziness or not wanting to put the work in but the type of work it's that's such a good point isn't it it's i think that social media is a very double-edged sword and it for the very top top races they need that focus to win the long and the short of it is i want to win and everything else is secondary to that and you know for up-and-coming riders there is a temptation because in their contracts the sponsors might actually be more concerned with the number of views on a video, uh, the number of likes on a post. They're, the ultimate drive for that sponsorship deal isn't a podium. It's a social media presence or growing a social media following. I've seen contracts or I've, been, I've discussed contracts with people where they had social media growth within the contract. And I thought that was really interesting. And it, in a way, it was also really worrying because if you've got an up-and-coming talented rider who does some edits with his friends in the off-season and they get really well-received, 
then maybe that side grows and grows and grows. And they're like, you know what? Do I really need to be grafting in the gym or out on my road bike or doing all this boring stuff and maybe not taking on these opportunities I've got to to go on filming trips or to, you know, to do media shoots. And I think, honestly, I think that we may lose some top-level races to that, to that side, because it doesn't matter whether they get the results or not. And they might still race. You know, I can think of a number of riders who are incredible racers, and the social media thing is, is paying them more, is of more interest, is less work, is more fun. And they'll make a living from that regardless of whether they're on the podium or they're maybe not even qualifying for a race. It almost doesn't make any difference. But if I was a junior now, I think it might be quite difficult to to make that decision because you've got to be quite bloody-minded. And maybe the decision's going to be made for you. You know, if, I, if I've got a 1,000 followers on Instagram and I'm trying to make it as a racer – I've not necessarily got any results to show for myself, have I? Because I'm a new racer. And a sponsor, what's a sponsor going to do? He's going to look at me and go, you've only got 1,000 followers. I've got a guy here who's got 15,000 followers. I'm going to give him the product. I'm going to give him some budget. And you're like, man, but how am I going to make it as a downhill racer? I need to go uplifting every weekend. I need to travel to races. I need to pay for airfares. So downhill is expensive, you know. Matt Jones gets a quarter of a million views in five hours from his back garden. Yeah, time, just what I mean. No, absolutely. It, Times are changing, it's, and and I'm it's incredible. I'm, I'm thinking here as you're speaking on, on potentially the demise of some top riders because back in the day there was only a few avenues you could go into, and uh, now social media is another avenue. It's not just racing, free ride, slope style, uh, a crankwork style rider. It's like, no, there are guys that are famous for never having raced, and that doesn't mean they're lazy. That doesn't mean you know there's no credibility it's a really interesting as you said double-edged sword and and if some of the downhill teams are putting in stipulations of social media and, and i know they want to leverage these riders social media i mean it's, it's happened to me as well and it is a double-edged sword because some of these riders the decision is getting made for them which is almost a sadder part i i, I agree and also i think i can think of some examples going back where careers may have been different if social media was there because there are some people that don't like social media and they don't enjoy it and they're not very good at it and they don't see any need for it. And those people may have had a harder time of it now because they were just worried about their racing. I, I, I don't think I'm going to name them because I don't want to make someone, you know, judge someone on whether it's good or bad. But, you know, I can think of a number of guys, incredible careers, really good races, but they didn't feel the need to showcase everything they did. They just got about their job and they let their results do the speaking. And I really do think the best riders do that. And you can see some of the best riders now who've got massive social media accounts. They're very savvy. They don't show you anything. They show you professional, professionally taken photos from the races. They reshare people's stories. They let the sponsors worry about what they post through their channel. And they go, you know what? I'm going to sit behind the screen and do my job. And I'm going to let someone else manage it. But I'd say that if you're 15, 16, 17 years old, you might not see that. You might think this guy's on social media all day long. And in actual fact, someone else is doing it for him and posting stock photos and a library of stuff that they've taken so that this guy can go out and actually do his graft. And I've, I've coached many a gym session where I've asked riders to please put their phones away. 
you know, and I've not, I've not, man, I wish I'd taken some videos and some photos for some of the best sessions I've ever done and posted them around the world, but they wouldn't have been the best sessions I've ever done if I was there with a phone in my hand, you know, because it takes the focus of what am I here for? I'm not here to brag about the job I'm doing. I'm here to do the job as best I can. And it, it, it really is a, an interesting one. And I, I don't know where social media goes from here and I don't know where downhill goes, but I think there will be a, a decision that some companies will have to make where they're like, are we after podium shots? Are we after the ultimate showcase of our product at the very highest level or are we after the widest showcase of our product and i don't think that downhill is that you know but downhill is your formula one where it's the the absolute if you can win on a certain set of suspension or certain brakes or certain tires it gives it credibility way more than a guy who's you know not pushing it to that ultimate level yeah, it's such interesting times, and I guess we were just speaking about the pros and cons of it, and it, it is here to stay, and certainly, look, we might lose some riders that could have been good downlists, but we're going to see them showcase their skill, and, you know, Josh Bryson comes to mind, someone that that followed his gut and, and moved away from downhill because it wasn't for him, and downhill is basically delayed gratification, it's months of work years of work yeah, sacrifice so to hopefully get that that end goal and social media is a little bit more oh, you know it's instant gratification so i guess that's just the polar opposite on on, on where human beings are, are going and uh, i think you're uh, potentially the the perfect man for this job because i've been asking some of the riders to build the perfect rider and uh, but you i'm gonna use five categories and it's basically be designed for you, so don't mess this up. But you're only allowed to use, you're only allowed to use a rider once per cat. Well, once, you know. So okay. there's fitness okay. and strength, cornering, jumping, technical ability, and the mental side. So there's five categories, but you can only use a a rider once to oh, try build I wish the you perfect could rider. Me. Could you could you not have prepared me for this? I could no, have come no, up with this. No, no, it has to be on the spot, and no one's going to judge you. It's just a fun little game. Okay. So if we, cool. we start okay. with fitness and strength, um, and, and you take that aspect of a rider, and you, you put that here. Okay, so if I talk about, and I guess I can use my experience, if you talk about the, the downhill animal, I'd say that, that G has been that guy who's worked on his fitness and strength, and he's... He has really shown to be tough from it, fit from it, and strong from it. So I guess G can fall into that category, can't he? Yeah, definitely. He's, he's, he's yeah. one of the early adopters of, of really yeah. working on strength, and I spoke to him a lot about that. Um, cornering ability. I, You know what? I think your friend of mine, Brendog, I think if you watch Brendan round corners, round berms, round flat corners, yeah, there's some amazing guys on bikes at cornering, but... When Brendan's on, he makes he he goes around those corners incredibly well. Yeah, uh, jumping, jumping ability, jumping style. I mean, you're just building your your rider for however you want him to perform. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, jump. I guess if we're looking at downhill, I who do I think on jumping on a downhill bike? Uh, that's a really good question. I can think of a few guys. Um, I think Danny comes to mind, to be honest, when it comes to jumping, quite interestingly, because of the way he seems to be able to move the bike to exactly where he wants it to be. 
Um, and that legendary photo at Champery where he's on a winning run and he's whipped that bike out. Uh, you know, why would you do that? You didn't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I like, I like that they're putting Danny so, in there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's my justification. I mean, there's so many, but I just think um, when you think about, yeah, from that, I'm giving it to him because of that jump at Champery. Because I think that was just unbelievable. Yeah, well, then you've uh, you can't use him for the next category because maybe on on technical riding and ability or riding difficult lines, um, who, who would you slot in there? I, t- I tell you what's really interesting. I'm I'm going to put Greg in for that one, and the reason I'm going to put Greg in for that one is when you watch Greg ride, he doesn't always look as though he's going that quick because he's so efficient when he rides and he has this ability to make he he almost has patience when he's riding so he doesn't rush anything and it doesn't always look fast where you watch some riders i think um mike jones or another one that's really interesting is laurie when you watch laurie ride you're like on the edge of your seat aren't you yeah oh my god this lad is he's either gonna blow up or he's gonna win and he's got that really loose style and the back end's going left and right. And I'm like, oh, my days, this is incredible to watch. And I think Greg's almost at the the other side where he's so – he's, like, fluid and methodical. And you're thinking, is this quick? And then the time pops up and you're like, oh, my life, it's really quick. So I think that when you think about from a technical point, Amory Piron as well, he's – he the way he is able to do some sections. I'd say Greg and Amory, there's always a section on the track where – there's a big line, you know, there's like, there's a risky big line. And I'd say that those are some of the guys, obviously it's not limited to them. No, absolutely. There are many guys like Remy Tyrone always pops in my mind because he'll always be on some off camber bank or thread through the rocks where you're just like, oh, I probably would get that four out of 10 times. And he's kind of getting it, getting it every time. But I like your view on, on Greg. And that's, that's quite a big lesson to the, to the listener. And he isn't he isn't rushed and he is methodical and, and smart about his riding. And then the last one, which technique could be Greg on, on any given day, is is mental strength. Yeah, mental strength is yeah, definitely you could have Greg up there. And I think um I definitely put Gwynny up there as well. Um but I like Bruni's approach and I think that Bruni's shown over the recent years that he can do it, although he has had some he has had some mishaps, shall we say, where things have gone wrong. Um, I'm trying to think of who I want to nail my nail my colours on, really, on that one, because those the top few guys are able to deliver again and again and again. Um, Do you think throwing someone like Troy is 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 because um, he's so consistent? Well, like, yes, yeah. he's not winning every weekend, and but that's. But he's just always delivering to a pretty good t- potential. I'm actually just blown away by it. But they all are. G was, before G's injury, he was good. Greg's always yeah. there. Gwen, Loic has matured so much. I mean, there are millions of guys. I think this is the, I, I think that's really interesting. Funnily enough, I was thinking about Troy because he seemed, Troy's the guy with no disrespect to Troy because he's unbelievable, where sometimes he doesn't get the headlines until you sort of, it comes out towards the end of the season. You're like, whoa, he's there. You know, he's always been bang. He's on the podium. He's always there. He's so consistent. And um, I think that Troy, you can't deny that when he needs to deliver, he delivers. 
And I think he's a really good example of not worrying about what anyone else is doing because maybe he looks at a track and he's like, maybe I won't be able to do that or this, but I'm going to do my very best. And it's always, wait, it's right up there. So I think that, um, yeah, I, I think you could definitely put it down. And I think going back, if we're allowed to go old school, I think Nico, like Vulios, when you think about a mental approach, I think he was one of the early guys when it came to understanding what it had to be, what you had to do. And he was so consistent. You know, when you look back at his results, the consistency was just unbelievable. No, I love going back. Folios is always one that, that I marveled at and how he was always able to lift his game when he really, really needed to. I mean, it's tough to lift your game through a whole season. It's just not realistic to peak through a whole season. But when he needed to, i.e. World Champs, he decided he was going to peak and he did just that. So that was impressive. Alan, you've been so amazing with your time and your insights. What about a parting... Uh, kind of nugget for the listener at home what do you want to instill in in the listener as an overview of of coaching and fitness that you've maybe learned from top athletes or just from all your experience i think what i've i've had the privilege of working with some incredible male and female athletes over the past 15 years and what i've taken from them is is the way that although on the surface it might look as though they're just living by the seats of their pants or going on what they feel, underneath that there's a very clear understanding of the direction they're going in. And they're not, they don't get put off by little speed bumps that are in their way and they keep pushing through. They've got this big overarching like understanding of what they want to achieve and how they want to get there. And I really do think that's a good lesson from a, from an for an amateur. It might be that you are limited with work and family and your other commitments and you might have to go well you know what i'm not going to be able to do a full series of racing or i'm not going to be able to do an international series of racing but you can come up with quite a nice plan of what i am going to try and go for that's achievable it's realistic and you can try and stick to that and not be put off that and i think that if you can have a slightly longer term view on training and riding and progression and you look back over six, eight, 12 months, you'll see the increase in improvement, not just week in, week out, or day in, day out. And that's definitely something that I've learned, and I think an amateur rider can learn a lot from. Well, that's a brilliant takeaway, and, and I could sit here almost for hours. It's lovely catching up after, after stepping away from racing and picking your brain even more and seeing some of my flaws while speaking to you. And I think the listener at home can pick up so much. So thanks so much for your time, Ellen, and I'm sure we'll have you back on. Oh, Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure. It's really nice to be able to chat to you. And, you know, obviously with our history of working together and, you know, it's been, it's really nice to see what you're doing now. And I think these podcasts are really well received because uh, you've got that insight and you understand from you know, from a racer's point of view. So it's, it's really nice to be able to chat to you about this. Yeah, and before you run away, um, I, I know you're avidly on your bike. Uh, speak to us a little bit of, of what you're up to day to day because I see you doing on-bike uh, coaching as well. Sorry, there's something I was meant to get to. Well, yeah, the, the on-bike stuff has, has sort of developed over the years and I found that with, with the junior races I was coaching, I was I was seeing some quite fundamental issues they could improve and i wanted to help them with that because from a foundation point of view it really translates and i think it also translates to amateurs and it's really nice obviously to um i share a sponsor with you in scott bikes 
and it's just been amazing to to you know be able to use those bikes for coaching and help people set them up and um see their progression because i i think that we can learn a lot from the pros on the bike as well and when you look at the the core position that a rider is in that translates whether you're male female junior young old we can boil it back to a good position on the bike good cornering technique good jumping technique good drop-off technique all of those things can be boiled back down and scaled up and down so i've been really enjoying that and at the moment i'm trying to get back into offering those days out on the hill because we, we can't be in the gym at the moment so it's uh i'm making the most of this weather it's nice to be out and riding isn't it well brilliant well let the listener know where they can find you on instagram at alan milway is there any anywhere else they can follow you along i think that's probably the best place i, I try and share sort of what I hope is interesting and good information on Instagram is probably the best place. I've got a coaching Facebook page, but a lot of that's similar to Instagram. So yeah, follow me on there. And if, if anyone's got any questions, I'm more than happy to help. I try and help people. I'm not trying to be secretive about anything. I, I want people to understand. And I'm, uh, if you've got any questions or queries, just drop me a message on Instagram and generally I'll try and help you as best I can. Well, brilliant. Ellen, uh, stay well. And I, I can't wait till the next catch up. Thanks again. All the best. Thank you, Andrew. Cheers to Alan Milway for coming on the show and sharing all of his amazing insights, experience. I hope you guys can gain something from that and use it in your training, everyday life. Maybe you've got a race, you've set some goals for yourself. I really think we can gain a lot from that. So thanks again to him. Thanks to you guys at home for all the awesome positive messages. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Share it with friends if you think they can benefit from it. I read all the messages, so send me a direct message if you've got something to say or a guest you're hoping to have on the show. Guys, until the next episode, enjoy. Enjoy.